3: Welcome into Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, host of The Guy Benson Show, right here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time, and we are just delighted to have all of you here as part of our radio family. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Everything's right there each and every day, including that podcast, which is on demand, absolutely free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are here in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. A lot to get to on the show, including later this hour, Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics. He'll be breaking down with us some of the outcomes, known and still undetermined, from last night's primary elections in a number of states. We'll be focusing on Pennsylvania, some interest in North Carolina, one or two eyebrow razors out of other states as well, including Idaho and Oregon. We will try to get to as much of that as we can with Tom Bevan. At this hour, I'll just say that the Pennsylvania Senate race on the Republican side is still razor thin, and there are tens of thousands of ballots outstanding. And we don't exactly know where they all are or whom they will favor. So it's a jump ball between Dr. Oz and David McCormick. With, I guess, some of the questions about Kathy Barnett and her vetting, hitting home in the last few days, she ended up fading into a somewhat distant third place. All of that and more coming up with Tom Bevan. In our next hour, U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican Louisiana, he will be here, as will Brandon Judd, the president of the National Border Patrol Council, talking about the border crisis. And we are just getting closer by the hour to May the 23rd and the disappearance of Title 42 with the numbers already shockingly bad as things stand and expected to get far worse. Details from Brandon Judd later on. And in our final hour, U.S. Senator John Barrasso. Barrasso's a Republican from Wyoming. He's a member of Republican leadership. He and Cassidy, both U.S. senators on the show today, also happen to be medical doctors, which is sort of fun. So... Again, a very busy show straight ahead. A few Republican lawmakers to talk to, as I mentioned. But I want to begin the show by talking about the other party, the ruling party, the Democratic Party. And sometimes we like to talk about one of the cliches in Washington, D.C., a fun little phrase, Dems in disarray. And today is a big, big Dems in disarray energy day. And I want to walk you through the reasons why. I know a lot of people are focused on last night's results or the lack of clarity surrounding some of those results. But just below the surface, there are recriminations, and I would even call them precriminations, that are brutal and vicious playing out on the Democratic side of the aisle, as I think finally it is starting to sink in among many of these Democrats— that the cavalry is not coming, that the American people are royally pissed, and that the Democrats are going to take the brunt of that anger in November. It's not like we're talking about a midterm cycle that's a year plus away. I remember when we would analyze midterm dynamics and I would say, oh, well, you know, we're 15 months out. Well, now we're five months and change out. And some of the numbers and data and trends that they are seeing – which aren't really that shocking, given what we already know. But I I think the writing is now on the wall so clearly. The font size is so big that even some of the perhaps more seasoned citizens who run that party can read very clearly the font on the wall. And there's some internal polling that I want to get to in a moment. But let's just back up for a second. Let's define a few terms, and let's talk about a pretty important thing that happened a number of weeks ago that we covered here that is very much becoming front and center in the midterm fight and I think the midterm anxieties among Democrats. The DCCC is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Their job is to elect as many House Democrats as possible and to help as many of their incumbents win reelection. That's the job. Their chairman, who's a sitting member of Congress, that's how it works, is a guy named Maloney, Sean Patrick Maloney. He's a quote-unquote moderate Democrat out of New York. But again, I mean, that term doesn't mean anything anymore. One Democrat voted against Build Back Better, and it wasn't him. One House Democrat voted against Build Back Better, $5 trillion. One House Democrat voted against the bill to make abortion legal to the moment of birth, and that was not Sean Patrick Maloney. So moderate is a relative term with today's Democratic Party, but he is sort of in that opposite of the squad group that at least present themselves as more middle of the road, comparatively speaking, I guess, and he is the chairman of the DCCC. As I mentioned, he's from New York, which matters because New York Democrats tried to gerrymander an unbelievable map in the state of New York where if they had gotten their way, it would have been 22 Democratic seats and four Republican seats. They were going to gerrymander Republicans out of existence and build up a huge advantage in New York, hopefully in their minds, offsetting the losses expected really all over the country elsewhere. New York was going to be kind of like their fortress, where they were going to, again, go to a 22 to 4 gerrymander. The problem is, as we mentioned a number of weeks ago when this all broke out, the Democrats ignored the constitutional amendment that they supported back in 2014, which put redistricting, reapportionment into the hands of an independent special master someone who is not partisan, was going to draw the lines. The Democrats agitated for and pushed for that amendment in 2014. They put it in front of voters. The voters of New York overwhelmingly said, yes, we want gerrymandering. Because remember, gerrymandering is bad, has been the talking point on the left for a long time. But they always forget that they like their own gerrymandering. So in 2014, they were saying, oh, yes, gerrymandering is bad, the bad Republicans So they passed a whole constitutional amendment with the consent of the electorate in New York to send this off to an independent entity that draws the lines. And then guess what happened this year? New York Democrats looked around and said, holy hell, we're in charge of everything. Let's screw over the Republicans. Never mind the whole constitutional amendment thing. Let's do it ourselves. So they did. And they drew the map that I just described. The New York Supreme Court threw it out as flagrantly unconstitutional and illegal under the thing that the Democrats themselves had pushed for. So just another delicious example of Dems in disarray. This is specific to New York, but it's going to expand out to the whole country here in a second. So there has now been the map presented by an independent entity, the map that is likelier to be the final map in New York. And the Dems are freaking out about it because as, a, as opposed to having 22 basically guaranteed Democratic seats, they only have 15. Republicans have five that are clearly Republican districts, and then there are six districts that are highly competitive. And in a wave year and a bad year for the Democrats, conceivably a majority of those, maybe even all of those potentially, could go the Republican direction. So they were banking on 22 to 4 at a huge advantage, an 18-seat advantage in New York. And what they might conceivably end up with is a single-digit advantage instead, which would be very, very bad news for the Democrats. And because the map is a lot fairer and a lot less ridiculous now, you've got New York Democrats scrambling to figure out which district that they want to run in. And obviously, you want to be in a safer district. You don't want to be one of these people who is vulnerable and in a district that is seen as highly competitive, particularly in an an environment like this, in a political atmosphere like we're experiencing right now. Sean Patrick Maloney, again, a sitting congressman from New York and the DCCC chairman, had warned Democrats in a private meeting recently that the ruling from the New York Supreme Court, by the way, all Democrat-appointed Justices on that court. All the judges were from Democrats. That's how flagrant the violation was. They threw it out and Maloney warned his fellow Democrats the new map could prompt, quote, an extinction level event. For New York Democrats, which is, I mean, a bit much, they're still going to have a majority of the delegation, but based on what they were expecting he's calling it or was calling it an extinction-level event. Well, now the map is out. It looks really worrisome for Democrats. So guess what Maloney's doing? He has announced, really annoying some of his fellow New York Democrats, that he is going to try to claim basically a district that is D plus 10, a very Democratic district, as opposed to another district that people were saying he might run in, which is... D plus five, maybe D plus eight. He doesn't want to run there. So he just preempted everyone and went out and publicly announced, I'm going for this safe seat. And there was another sitting Democrat, a current incumbent, who Maloney's job is to help get reelected, who would be kicked to the curb under this situation. So he's out there griping and grousing publicly. New York Democrats are pointing fingers at each other. They're saying Maloney's in it for himself. He's screwing people over. I think the bigger story is this, and I've, I've seen a few people make the observation. I had a Republican analyst text me. Think about it. The chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is going out of his way to try to run in a D-plus-10 district, not a D-plus-5 district. What does that tell you about what he is seeing in internal polling? focus groups, etc. It's his whole job. If he's looking at himself as a moderate, quote unquote, and he feels like D plus five, a, a district that is still, at least in theory, leaning his party's direction by five points. If he is scared to run in that kind of a district, I think that is extremely revealing about how the party is likely to fare. So there's a Politico story related to this because a lot of these vulnerable Democrats are now scapegoating Maloney. They're mad at him. And at least a dozen of them, quote, mostly from swing districts, are now raising the prospect of trying to depose Maloney from his post as the DCCC chairman, according to multiple people familiar with the discussions. When you have more than a dozen vulnerable members of one party— Five months out from an election, trying to throw the leader of their campaign committee out the window and out of the job. That is basically the textbook definition of Dems in disarray in this case. They're mad at him. They're mad at each other. They're scared. They want him gone. People in New York are ticked off at him for sort of jumping ahead and presuming that he gets to pick the district that he wants to run in. They're like, are you out for the party? Are you out for House Democrats? Or are you out for yourself? And the answer seems to be he's out for himself because he sees what's coming. He can see the numbers. He can see the data. And so he's trying to save his hide. But the the math doesn't work. Not everyone can have their hide saved. And that's why I'm calling it precriminations. Punchball News had some more meat on the bones of this whole blow-up. Listen to this detail. Internal polling, I was hinting at this, internal polling from the DCCC, this is what Maloney's staring at every day, finds, quote, that in battleground districts, so these swing districts, the areas that are probably single digits in, in either direction in terms of the 2020 totals, generic Republicans are beating generic Democrats 47 to 39%, according to multiple-party officials and the DCCC. Translation, the Democrats' own internal numbers, where they polled in battleground districts all across the country, then averaged out all of those numbers, they find themselves in their own polling trailing by 8 points, Against the Republicans. This is a metric, I'll remind you, the generic ballot. That generally favors Democrats, usually by two to four points is sort of the baseline. And Republicans can actually do pretty well if they're, quote, only trailing in the generic ballot by a handful of points. If they're tied, that's really good. If they're ahead, that's really good for the Republicans. If they're ahead by eight points in the Democrats' own internal polling in the battlegrounds, that sounds a lot closer to what's the term? Extinction level than anything else. Oh, and by the way, if that's what the battleground districts are showing at the House level, I wonder what battleground states are showing at the Senate level. So you've got Democrats mad at each other in New York. You've got them scapegoating and blaming Maloney, the C uh, chairman who does seem to be very much self-interested at this point. You've got people now leaking to the press that they're trying to throw him out of the position with months to go into Election Day as they're all looking at an eight-point deficit in battleground districts. Whoa. I wanted to bring all of that to your attention because what kind of array are the Democrats in right now? I would call this disarray, very much so. Maybe the stark reality of the failures of the Democratic Party dead last in the new NBC poll where they did all the favorability ratings of a bunch of entities dead last as a Democratic Party, almost 20 points underwater. Their brand is in the toilet for good reason. They've done that to themselves to quote the vice president. We did it, Joe. We did it. Boy, did they. And the Dems are in disarray. Just getting started on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Just talked about the Democrats being in disarray. For the last, what, two and a half weeks, we've been told, well, there's an issue that might save them by awakening a sleeping giant. And that issue is abortion and Roe versus Wade. And all of a sudden, the fortunes might shift. And what we've done on this show is time and again point out that public opinion polling actually doesn't bear out that theory At all. If Democrats can convince a lot of people that overturning Roe means every abortion is illegal in America, that might benefit them. The problem is they have a radical position themselves that they all just voted on and failed, but they voted on it. Almost every last one of them voted yes to make abortion on demand, paid for by taxpayers, available for any reason in an unlimited basis, on an unlimited basis up to the moment of birth which is wildly unpopular with the American people. Trafalgar is out with a new poll today. 14% of Americans believe abortion should be illegal in all circumstances except to save the life of the mother. Another 24% believe it should be illegal in almost all circumstances, with a few exceptions like rape, incest, and the life of the mother. When you add up also people who believe that abortion should be illegal after the fetal heartbeat in the first trimester, you're up to 58% of the country. How many Americans embrace the Democrats' position? About 12%. That 12% is not going to save them in November.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
3: As we continue here, GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcasts, free of charge and on demand every day. With us is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. Tom, great to have you here. Thank you.
4: Great to be with you, Guy. All
3: right, there's a lot to walk through together. Let's start in Pennsylvania where the outcome... Of the Democratic primary for Senate is determined and very decisively. John Fetterman, lieutenant governor, Bernie guy, very progressive, very aggressive. He'll be the Democratic nominee in that state. The Republican side still undetermined. And it's sounding like we might not actually have a final answer of who won between Dr. Oz and uh, McCormick for maybe even days. Uh, What's going on here?
4: Well, we've got ninety six percent of the vote in, and Oz is leading by his lead is down to about just under two thousand votes now, still two tenths of a percent. And you've got these these ballots in Lancaster County, I guess about somewhere between around fourteen or fifteen thousand that apparently were misprinted and they're gonna have to go back through them and it's gonna take a few days um, to figure out exactly you know the final tally there. And then, uh, assuming that that doesn't produce a result that somehow, you know, skews the – or pushes the, pushes the final results outside of the, the half of 1 percent, which triggers an automatic recount, they will start recounting the ballots in this race. So I think we are days away from understanding exactly who won the race and by how much.
5: Right,
3: because right now, as you mentioned, Oz is ahead very slightly, but there are tens of thousands of votes that have not been counted in this primary contest. And it's sort of a guessing game now in terms of where are those votes coming from? What are the margins going to look like in those batches of votes? And it seems entirely plausible to me that Oz hangs on and is the nominee. It seems almost equally plausible that the McCormick people will gain and then overtake Oz. I mean, it really could be either of them, right? That That's not overhyping this.
4: No, I I I, I agree with you. I mean, again, there are enough there are enough ballots outstanding that it could it could change the result. Um, The ones that I'm aware of are in Lancaster County. That's a county that Trump won by I think 20 points. So you might you might be able to infer that that would favor Oz, but not necessarily. Right. Um, So we'll we'll have. But Allegheny is
3: home base for David McCormick, right? And that's on the other side of the state,
4: outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. So. So we'll have to see. I mean, it is going to be (laughs) – look, this has been a crazy race. I mean, just the whole thing from start to finish, particularly at the end, you know, the way that that Kathy Barnett surged, at least it looked that way in the polls. Then she sort of fell off at the end and finished, uh, you know, kind of a distant third, about six and a half points behind these two candidates. And, you know, the schism that it caused within the Republican Party with Trump endorsing Oz and and all of that mess uh, has just been, you know – Produced a, a crazy result, and, and we will have to wait a few more days to know exactly um, how this thing's going to go out. I will say, look, if Oz wins this, if Oz, there were a lot of stories this morning. I was reading, oh, you know, Trump stumbled and Trump, you know, didn't do as well in, in his endorsements because, you know, Madison Cawthorn lost in North Carolina or something. If Oz hangs on and wins this, um, you know, that's that's a huge win for Trump. I mean, he really went out of his way, stuck his neck out to endorse this guy that a lot of his own supporters didn't, you know, didn't want him to, didn't like the endorsement. And and if he's able to drag him across the finish line, it's going to be it's going to be a big win for him.
3: Yeah, if it happens and we're potentially days away from that. One quick side note, but related. I was on Fox News Channel earlier and I got up a little bit on the soapbox about this. And I don't know if you agree or disagree, Tom, but I feel like whether it's Pennsylvania under this system, New York is horrible on this. California is horrible on this. I think it really undermines faith in outcomes and faith in democracy among Americans when it takes forever to tabulate and report accurate election results. And Florida had their big egg-on-the-face Mess back in 2000, they were you know a laughingstock in the country. The whole presidential election hinged on that circus down there. Afterwards, they went about changing their whole system, and it seems like Florida has a great system in place. And I don't understand for the life of me why other states insist on these just Byzantine. Vote counting scenarios that can drag on for forever and a day. I think the longer things hang out there and twist in the wind, I see Trump is saying, "Oz should just declare victory, or else they're going to find some votes." It's like the same BS. This stuff can happen over and over again, and I get it. Sometimes you'll have races that are just too close to call quickly, uh, or even on election night. But it seems like in some of these places, it's now a regular occurrence. I don't think it does our system or our society many favors that's sort of my my take on this i wonder if you agree or if you think i'm missing something
4: no i generally agree and look we we've had you know for better or worse we've had a bunch starting in 2000 but certainly in the last few cycles we have a sort of evenly divided country producing all sorts of razor-thin elections and and subsequently when that happens you start digging down in the weeds and seeing how the sausage is made if i can mix my metaphors there and and it's it's you know these are local election officials by and large that are running these things and and mistakes are made and you know machines break down and things happen and and you're right it does I mean part of that is just the nature of an election that is so close that you know at the presidential level it's you know ten thousand votes or five thousand votes Senate race it's two thousand votes House races it's down to you know single digit votes sometimes I mean that, that race in New York. Uh, yeah. And Iowa, Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just so so. You know, you do have those situations, but I generally I agree with you. I mean, it is it is absurd that you know states are taking in absentee ballot votes for weeks, um, and then they don't start counting them until the polls close on election day, and that takes another two days or three days or four days when they could have those votes counted, add them to the tally immediately, and get you know some some real time results.
3: Stop. And also, like stop the date at which you can receive or send in a mail in ballot right. long That's before right. the election, not like crazy long, but a week before the election we're done here, as opposed to some of these states where you can you know post market by election day, so then you're waiting and waiting, the whole thing drags on. I just like do what Florida did and copy it. I don't want the feds to get involved, but I think a lot of these states, whether you're right, left, or center, just go down to Florida, and my friend was joking earlier, I was chatting with her about this, like Ron DeSantis and Jeb Bush can do a PowerPoint presentation together about how they do it in Florida, and that model seems to work quite well, and it's very frustrating, I think, to a lot of people, and it it fuels and feeds this whole thing about chicanery, and people can start thinking about conspiracy theories as it drags on. Hour after hour after day, in some cases weeks, that, I think, really does do a disservice and and does damage to people's perception of the whole process. I'll just leave that point there for now. Let's bounce around to a couple other races. You mentioned Madison Cawthorn down in North Carolina. So Trump's guy won the Senate race in that state, Ted Budd. And I know the Club for Growth was instrumental on his behalf. He ended up winning pretty big. He's the nominee. He's the front runner, I would say, statewide. In Western North Carolina, though, you had Cawthorn, an incumbent, lose the primary. He lost like 70% of the primary vote, but it was a, a splintered field. Still, it wasn't enough for him to hang on. What's your takeaway there?
4: Well, I mean. Look, he was a he was a firebrand. I mean, he was a lightning rod, and he he drew the ire of establishment Republicans in Washington, in North Carolina. They all lined up against him. They all made it personal um, to try and and you know get this guy out of office. He was he, he was struggled through a bunch of embarrassing sort of you know revelations at the end of his campaign, whether they were hit jobs or smears or, or whatever. Um, they just really sort of slowed him down, and you know, Trump's endorsement last minute, you know, didn't make much of a difference. We we don't know how much of a difference it made, but certainly, you know, as with out in Nebraska, the governor's candidate there, who had his own set of issues. I mean, these candidates candidates matter, and if, and if they run into to personal issues or, or other things with the electorate, um, yeah. you know, Trump won't be able to get him across the finish line, and that's what Copper just had too many too many enemies. Oh, and
3: a lot of baggage, too, and a lot of it was self-inflicted, yeah. uh, a lot of this damage. And, you know, I I actually feel for the guy. He's been through a lot. He's very young. He's, I think, battling some issues and some demons, and I'm not sure when you're that young to be in this white hot of a spotlight trying to grapple with some of these challenges while in Congress. It, just, it didn't seem like a healthy situation for him. So, you know, I, I hope that he's uh-huh. able to find— Peace and and mature down the line, but I am, I almost wonder to some extent is he almost relieved by the outcome? I don't know. I don't want to psychoanalyze it.
4: Yeah, no. I will say this though. I mean, I thought he I thought his concession. I mean, conceded early. He was very graceful. He said he's going to line up behind Edwards, and you know, Republicans yep. need to get together. And so I thought it was a.
3: Yeah, we need more uh, of that. A very
4: grace, graceful end. Yeah. To, you know, we only lost by a thousand votes, um, but still c- conceding
3: a, thousand, a loss. Conceding votes. a loss, yeah. congratulating your opponent, <laughs> you know, bringing the party together. These seems like to uh, kind of together quit. they seem like yeah, good <laughs> ideas. Good ideas. Let's <laughs> right. do more of that. I think that's probably the smart thing uh, and good for our body politic. Uh, there were a few other races. Uh, one was out in Idaho where Trump backed insurgent to try to take down the incumbent governor, that failed. So that was, you know, there's a mixed bag here for Trump's endorsement successes. I know there's a lot of attention on that, maybe outsized attention on it. What I'm more interested in today, Tom, is the left sort of beating its chest. They're very excited about Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Connor Lamb was the supposed moderate that the establishment wanted as the electable guy, and he was— Forcefully rejected by Pennsylvania Democrats by a large double-digit margin. Fetterman is much more, much more left-wing, uh, even than Lamb. Then you've got some of these House races where very sort of squad-style challengers seem to be prevailing. One is out in Oregon. Uh, there's another one, if memory serves, in maybe is it North Carolina? There was a, another one that. Oh, it was Pennsylvania. It was in, in western Pennsylvania. The left is coming on strong, at least in this batch of primary elections. And I wonder what that says about the internal fight within the Democratic Party. But then also looking ahead to November, is it a smart play for the Democrats to be running very left wing people in a cycle that's probably going to be pretty difficult for the party writ large in general?
4: Yeah, it's a great point, and you know, so much time and energy by the media is spent on the whole fissure within the Republican Party, Trump versus the establishment, and and all of that, all the scorekeeping that's going on. You're right; a lot of these these races that have gone on on the Democratic side, which exposes their very similar schism within their party, uh, go unremarked upon. And and you did have you know, Kurt Schrader out in Oregon lose uh, like. Not by a little. I mean, he lost by 20, 22, 23 points.
3: That's the um, incumbent sort of more centrist Democrat correct. who is now thrown out by, you know, a leftist in that primary.
4: Correct. I mean, this was this was not a uh, this was not a nail biter. I mean, there's only the race isn't called yet. There's there's still, uh, you know, a decent portion of the vote out. But he is he is losing badly there. So um, so your point, I think progressives have done have done pretty well, um, and Fetterman is obviously the biggest example of that. I mean, this is a guy who who is very progressive. I mean, now he reads more as like a a, a Trump guy. He you know wears the hoodies and he's got the goatee and he's bald and he looks like he's a WWE type. Um, so physically, visually, he doesn't read like a you know like a, a member of the squad. But his positions are very much in line with the you know, the squad on a lot of issues. And so that's going to be something that that is going to be uh you know, well debated during this campaign season. And yep. if the issues remain in the economy, inflation, six dollar gallon gas, and and he's promoting more spending and free health care and all these things, uh that this might not be the right year to be doing that, especially in a state that's as as much of a swing state as as Pennsylvania is.
3: Yeah, extremely closely divided, and you'll have in Pennsylvania the Republican gubernatorial nominee is an election truther who was in Washington, D.C. for the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th, and the Democrat, I know he's not calling himself a squad member or a socialist, but he's, he's a Bernie guy, so I mean, that, that sort of speaks for itself. There have been some risky bets placed by both parties in Pennsylvania, and there's still that yeah. one big piece of the equation TBD, which is who's the Senate nominee for the Republicans in the Keystone State, quickly and lastly, Tom Bevan, a polling question, which is what you guys do at Real Clear Politics analyzing this stuff. I spent some time talking about it earlier in the show, the revelation that the DCCC has their own internal poll numbers. When they average out the battleground races that they've polled all across the country, Republicans have an eight-point generic ballot lead, 8 Points in the D-TRIP numbers, I mean, I, I think th- that kind of speaks for itself, but dig a little deeper for us about why that's so significant.
4: Well, so if you look at the generic congressional ballot, right, and that's the question the pollsters ask, if the election were held today, would you vote for the Republican or the Democrat for Congress? And sometimes they ask House and then Senate it as a separate question, but usually it's just the one question. And it's a measure that Democrats have traditionally done well on, polled well on better than Republicans. And if you look at our Rookler politics average right now, you've got about 10 polls that have been taken over the last three weeks and Republicans are leading by about 2.8%. In some of these polls, the Fox News poll from late April, Republicans were plus seven, the CNN poll from early May, Republicans plus seven, Monmouth Republicans plus seven, a couple of a couple of polls have Democrats leading slightly by you know one, two or three points, but um so this is good news for Republicans because traditionally Democrats would be doing better in that metric. but to the point that you made, these are national polls, okay, so these are taking into account that question being asked in California and New York and Illinois states that aren't going to be competitive, and so the situation is is much worse for Democrats in states like. The ones where people are, these elections going to be decided: Nevada, yep. Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, and so the D Triple C number confirm what you know us poll watchers know, which is in swing state, in swing districts, and swing states. The situation is much worse for Democrats than it is at the national level in the generic Exactly.
3: Ballot. And as you look at the, and you zoom out to the national level, I mean, it's not like we're far and you know very far out from the election anymore. Five months and change to go. We'll be watching the polls like a hawk. They'll be doing that and aggregating them at RealClearPolitics.com. The president and founder of which is Tom Bevan. Tom, always appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. A Guy Benson Show, Jim Crow on steroids, Georgia voter suppression update.
3: As we're back on the show, Gabriel Sterling from the Secretary of State's office in Georgia updating the public on the voter suppression that the racist Republicans have done in his state. And they're on pace for yet another record day of early voting in Georgia. And they're on track. For 700,000-plus votes going into Election Day, which is a primary election in Georgia, they have already shattered their previous records, and they're going to shatter it even more in the coming days. Voter suppression, Jim Crow on steroids, that was the lie. The results speak for themselves, and we will continue keeping you updated. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. The Dow getting hammered today. That and more straight ahead.
5: Live from
2: the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
3: A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of 3, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. And the free podcast is on demand, no charge to you every single day. Also give us a follow, toss us a follow, smash that follow button if you will on Instagram and on Twitter, at Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert. Just a terrible day on Wall Street, the Dow shedding 1,161 points, plunging to 31,493. I read that that was the seventh largest point drop in a single day ever. And the overall explanation seems to be inflation worries ramping up, energy prices, I mean I mean look at gas prices, they're just egregious and rising again, and then underlying all of it recession fears. So a massive sell off today on Wall Street. White House says they're not really watching those gyrations every single day. That's fine. But, boy, this stuff is all related. Meanwhile, I want to bring you some extremely sad news. The Ministry of Truth is no more. That's right. The Biden administration's disinformation board, or whatever they're calling it, has been paused indefinitely. And it seems as though sweet, sweet Nina Jankowitz, woke Mary Poppins, is resigning. This scoop coming from The Washington Post. Listen to this headline. How the Biden administration let right wing attacks derail its disinformation efforts. The quote unquote pause of the Department of Homeland Security's newly created board comes after its head, Nina Jankowicz, was the victim of coordinated online attacks as the administration struggled to respond. The byline Taylor Lorenz, who is an expert on coordinating online attacks, it's her whole job. So, apparently, the Biden administration has just knuckled under to right-wing attacks. And in the story, it's like, this was mentioned on Fox News a lot. Oh, no. How dare we? How dare we? It's just a powerful government entity, supposedly and ostensibly designed to root out misinformation and disinformation, led by an apparently unvetted woman who has been a promiscuous— Spreader of mis and disinformation herself. And strangely, our news organization thought that was newsworthy. And Taylor Lorenz, an online bully posing as a journalist at the Washington Post, seems to think that the real victim in all of this is, well, Cut 11.
6: it's how you hide a little, Idle lie. It's how you hide a little, Idle lie. It's how you hide a little, Idle
4: lie. When Rudy Giuliani shared that in from Ukraine. Or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain. They're laundering disinfo and we really should take note. And
3: not support their lies with our wallet, voice or vote. Oh! Mm, there's your victim in all of this. Sweet Nina. Oh, sweet Nina. She'll have much more time now for lowbrow community theater. So that's the plus, at least for her, assuming the resignation goes through. By the way, I was going to try to cut that off, the clip. It's just so much. But not today. Not today. Not for Nina. She deserved to be heard, given that her Orwellian government entity apparently has had the uh, the old plug pulled. She got the old heave-ho from Uncle Joe. And, of course, it's the fault of right-wing attacks. And by attacks, I assume Taylor Lorenz means direct quotes. Woke Mary Poppins has been deliberately and in a coordinated way attacked by people quoting her verbatim. How dare we? The story from The Washington Post, dozens of websites, including Breitbart. Post-millennial, Daily Caller, New York Post, began mining Jankowicz's past social media posts and publishing articles to generate controversy. That is the exact job description of Taylor Lorenz. She's worked a bunch of different places, then, like, burns the place down as soon as she leaves, most recently the New York Times. Now she's at the Washington Post. The entire business model of Taylor Lorenz, who poses as, like, a Gen Z internet expert. And she's actually like like six years older than I am or something. What she does for a living is mining people's social media posts and publishing articles to generate controversy. It takes a very special person to write that sentence, not realizing that that's, in fact, your job it would be like me being it would be like me going on the air and saying oh something horrible has happened there is someone who every single day sits inside, in front of a microphone for 3 hours and gives their opinions mixed in with guests can you believe that can you believe how outrageous that is why would anyone make a living that way i feel like the second that thought formed in my brain I would say, oh, you know what? No, let's not. That's what we do here, so let's maybe not throw stones at that. That's just kind of, I don't know, basic self-awareness, but no, Taylor Lorenz. Sh- maybe maybe Taylor, here's the thought, Taylor Lorenz and Nina Jankowicz, Because Lorenz is going to move on from the Washington Post at some point. She burns bridges no matter where she goes. So she'll find herself seeking employment down the line, sooner or later. Maybe she and Nina could team up. They could write a whole musical, like a Hamilton-style musical, just much worse, about disinformation. You could bring some people in to choreograph it, do some jazz hands, the snapping like in Chicago. I don't know if you can use Mary Poppins. There's probably some copyright issues there. But maybe like a cheap knockoff, something like that. She could star in it. Nina could. Lorenz could, could write the review of her own show. I'm just spitballing here. But yeah, apparently the uh the jig is up. It didn't work out. And one of the arguments that people are out there making, well, I'll, I'll note this first, Ziad Jelani, who's a writer, posts the story from the Washington Post. Oh, the right wing attacks derailing the disinformation efforts. And he asks a simple question. This article is written without mentioning that Nina Jankowitz made a series of demonstrably false claims herself, yes, it was the disinformation and misinformation and partisanship spread on the reg by sweet Nina weirdly didn't make it into the story, blaming the right wing for doing the thing that Taylor Lorenz, the author of the piece, does for a living every day. Isn't that weird? The pushback has been, oh, this is very dangerous. Fox News is dangerous for highlighting this woman and featuring this story as much as they did. I find it interesting that the media apparently seems to think, a lot of journalists seem to think, it's really not that big of a deal to have a government entity overseeing what they decide is disinformation and misinformation, which is very creepy to me. They say, oh, well, they said it was not going to track or surveil or try to punish American citizens. This was going to be about issues abroad. You know what? I don't believe that. I don't believe it for a second. Sweet Nina didn't really seem that interested about foreign adversaries. She seemed very interested about going after conservatives and Republicans. So I just don't believe them. And now we may never know because the Ministry of Truth, it seems is no more. Let's make sure that actually happens, that there's a follow-through. There's not a bunch of headlines that it's gone, then it's not. So we'll keep tracking this, but... Sorry, Mary Poppins. in a spoonful of sugar to have this medicine go down, like her agency apparently has, hard. Quick break, right back. Senator Bill Cassidy up next on The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
7: So, if it's pausing because you think the board was mischaracterized, then the disinformation board is being shut down because of disinformation. Is that what's happening here?
5: Look, I mean, the the board was put forth for a purpose, right? To make sure that we really did a t- a, uh, really did address what was happening across the country when it came to disinformation. And it's on, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's just going. Sure. It's. It's going to pause. There's been a mischaracterations from outside, uh, outside forces. And so now what we're going to do is gonna, we're going to pause it and we're going to do an assessment. But the work, does, the work doesn't stop. We're still going to continue the work. The DHS is still going to continue the work. Okay.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We are back. That was an exchange between Peter Ducey and the new White House press secretary today about the pause of this disinformation board. That was derailed because of outside forces saying wrong things or something. But the work continues or something. I'm sort of confused by what exactly is going on here. Maybe someone who can help us with it is Dr. Bill Cassidy, U.S. Senator from the state of Louisiana. He is a Republican. And Senator Cassidy, it's good to have you back here.
6: Hey, Guy, thank you for having me. I'm just kind of smiling at that interchange you just played. Um, um, The work continues. That, That strikes fear in your heart, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. What work are they talking about? Is it the role of the government at all to decide what is misinformation and disinformation, given their track record in the last, oh, I don't know, couple of years alone? Seems like the official arbiters of this stuff have been really very wrong a lot of the time.
6: Well, when the official arbiter that they appoint was clearly wrong on two big issues— and then they speak about the, whatever, the right-sided, right-wing kind of misinformation attacking her, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm thinking, no, it speaks for itself. Look at her judgment on previous things. Look at her tweets. Wait a second. We're supposed to trust her. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking.
3: Yeah, well, apparently they've decided to reconsider the whole thing. They're not saying that the the plug has been permanently pulled, but at least for now it has And again, I think that we should keep an eye on it because they might try to resurrect it in some other form. And I think generally this is a bad idea, period, for the government to be wading into such matters. And some of the so-called misinformation or disinformation that has been censored and then sort of sheepishly admitted to as at least plausible, if not accurate information in recent years has surrounded the issue of COVID, where people brought up. Totally fair questions about masking, about mitigation efforts and restrictions and the efficacy of those restrictions. The harm against children for shutdowns in closed schools, for example. The origins of the virus itself potentially leaking out of a laboratory in China. A lot of that stuff, you, you couldn't say that on social media. Things would get shut down. Your your account could be suspended. You'd be upbraided as a conspiracy theorist by many in the media, and then you wait a few months or you wait a year, and then, oh, it's sort of conventional wisdom all of a sudden. I wonder, given that, Senator, you're a medical doctor as well, what do you make of the re-imposition that we're starting to see of restrictions and sort of, you know, red-level warnings about COVID and masks coming back on in schools, even some school closures again, are we about to start making the same exact mistakes over and over again in some places?
6: We better not. I'll just say that as a doc. But as a doc, I can tell you, looking at the literature, the effect of isolation upon our society has been awful. It has increased the number of people who are dying from overdoses. It is. It has taken a whole group of children and has taken a year out of their learning life. I just saw something yesterday from a college professor that the students who came back from isolation just really are not the same students that went into isolation. So there was a high price to pay there, Guy. And I think the important thing is that we highlight that, whatever the uh, other risk might be there. That always has to be a cost-benefit ratio, and the cost was far higher than people wish to admit, as you just pointed out.
3: You have recently called, Senator, for an Operation Warp Speed, which is what we associate, of course, with the vaccines, although we saw some misinformation from the White House in a tweet the other day saying that there was no vaccine until Joe Biden was president. So uh, I wonder if perhaps Nina Jankowicz can now spend some of her free time trying to find whoever wrote that tweet. But Operation Warp Speed, you're saying that should be replicated, but on the energy front. What would that look like from your perspective, an Operation Warp Speed for American energy?
6: Think about what happened for Operation Warp Speed for vaccine. We were told it would take two to ten years. You're thinking, wait, we're going to be locked down for two to ten years. And instead, the administration brought everybody in a room, uh, you know, metaphorically. They said, listen, do you have a problem with this? If you do, work it out with that agency. Okay, agency number two, have you solved it? If not, keep working at it. And they're able to come in. Now, Congress had given them the tools. But they use these tools to do things, you know, in parallel instead of one time after the other. And they actually sped it up so that vaccine was being given to people 10 months after the epidemic began, at least hit the shores of, of, of the United States. We should do the same thing in energy. Right now, we've got bureaucrats tying people who are developing renewable energy in knots. Uh, Not just fossil fuel, which is essential to our economy, but all the other projects as well. So we're paying more, more at the fuel pump, more for our heating and air conditioning bill. And by the way, paying more for food, fertilizer is made from natural gas. And so if natural gas goes up, then we're paying more for fertilizer. We're paying more for food. So we can change that. We've got the resources. We need the will. And right now the will... Would be an operation warp speed by the administration to speed things up.
3: But I mean, they have no desire to do that, do they? I mean, it's against their ideology. They want to do the opposite. You know
6: it's, it it certainly seems so when Biden gets up and makes a public speech that the that I'm going to stay focused on lowering the price of gasoline, and the next day, literally, <laughs> literally. the administration cancels lease sales that would increase the supply of oil to make gasoline. You're thinking, either the president doesn't know what his administration is doing, uh, or they just don't care about that American family. And that's my real suspicion. They don't care about that family struggling to pay their bills. Let them eat cake, which is to say the modern version, tell them to buy an electric vehicle. They can't afford that electric vehicle. They need to be able to afford their gasoline.
3: We have about 30 seconds, Senator. What could be done immediately, not longer term, and I'm for that stuff too, but what could be done immediately to at least make this a little bit better?
6: Canada is ready to sh- send another 400, 200 to 400,000 barrels of oil a day, and they can do that with existing pipelines, existing rail, and existing barges. And we need to encourage them to increase production that could replace that which we're losing from Russia and do an immediate kind of jumpstart in the meantime you also can improve improve the uh, our, our permit drilling off the coast of Louisiana one example I'm familiar with I'm told within a year yeah. they could be shipping oil and gas to the shore to be refined that's the second So thing there's to do.
3: two specific examples off the top of your head unfortunately I doubt we're going to see either of these things from the administration unless things get even worse which they might Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana thank you very much for your time sir we'll be right back
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: Halfway through the program and halfway through the broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our website where the podcast is right there for you, no charge, It's just on us, every day on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. Joining us now is Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Patrol Council. And Brandon, it's good to have you back here on the Guy Benson Show.
7: Anytime. Appreciate you having me.
3: I want to get your reaction to some statistics that we shared here on the air yesterday, the breaking numbers from court filings in DHS that last month in April, nearly 235,000 illegal immigrants were encountered at the southern border. That does not include any of the known or unknown gotaways, but that number is the highest ever in DHS history. I read elsewhere that it's the highest number in a single month, In a century, at least in record keeping. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the Title 42 drop dead date yet, but it seems like people are very much adjusting their behavior accordingly. Put that number 234,088 in April alone in further context from your perspective
7: well if if you look historically right now at this point in in time, we should be arresting somewhere around one thousand to one thousand five hundred people a day um, but in reality, our numbers are up or you know close to eight thousand people a day so you know uh, historically speaking we're we're seven times higher than what we're supposed to be at right now. And that's simply because everybody knows that they can game the system. They know that under this administration, they're going to be released. 118,000 people were, were, were released, which means we expelled under Title 42 about half the people that crossed the, the, the border illegally. Once Title 42 goes away, we're going to be releasing all of those people, which is why so many people are crossing the border illegally right now. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, at, at President Trump, We were expelling 95 to 99% of the people that cross the border illegally. Now we're only expelling 50%, which is why the numbers have exploded. And when we stop expelling anybody, those numbers are going to go that much higher, which is why we're estimating that we could go as high as 18,000 people per month. And and by the way, 18,000 people, those people are just going to be released into the United States. In other words, they're going to be rewarded for violating our laws. And
3: just to go over some of the stats that you just brought up, just for the purposes of clarity, 234,000-plus apprehensions at the border in April, 118,000 of those were just processed and released into the country, flown to various cities, put on buses. People were, quote, free to travel, which is what Jen Psaki said from the White House podium. The other approximate half of that number, we're just talking about April. Right. If you zoom out, we're talking about millions of people who have come here illegally since Joe Biden took office. But just in April, it was two hundred and thirty five thousand roughly half of them were removed. Nearly all of those under Title 42. Once that tool is eliminated, which it's supposed to be, according to the Biden team next week. I mean, are you going to see any of those people removed or a tiny fraction of them? It seems like the problem is just going to become not just unsustainable but, like, shocking. It's just going to explode.
7: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, a very tiny fraction will be removed under Title Eight. Um, title Eight is the uh, is the the portion of the laws that we enforce, and under Title Title Eight, we'll be able to remove a small number. But the problem is, is everybody knows how to game Title Eight. Everybody knows that all they have to do is claim that they have a fear of returning to their country, and if they claim that they have a fear of returning to their country, they're going to be released pending a an asylum review by an asylum officer. And so everybody knows exactly what they need to do. The cartels... Right, there's a script. How there's process.
3: literally a script, right? You yep. use these buzzwords, and, and under the yep, current system, yep, and, you then have a ticket into America.
7: And it's the cartels that... that that script it for these people. It's, it's they, they teach it to them. And that's how the cartels make so much money. What they do is they they go into countries throughout the world. This is not just Mexico, Central America, South America. This is throughout the world. We are dealing with people from 156 different countries around the world. And what they do is they go into these countries and they advertise their services and they tell everybody, all you have to do is give me thousands of dollars. I will get you to the U.S.-Mexico border and I will teach you exactly what you need to say To get released into the United States. That's that is the root cause. That is what is driving illegal immigration today. And if this administration was honest, they would come to the American public and they would tell them that. Instead, they try to um, deflect on all of their failings, um, which allows them to continue to do what they're doing, because the mainstream media, obviously, they're going to give them um, good coverage rather than telling the American public exactly what is happening.
3: Or I would say not even good coverage, mostly no coverage, which they're perfectly fine I with. Have, a lot point. a lot of people try to bury the story. I see that some hacks who make a, a living literally out of attacking networks like this one had a big hatchet job on Bill Malugin the other day trying to argue that he's not a real journalist or whatever. The guy's covering one of the most important stories in the country. He's doing it incredibly well. He's doing good journalistic work, and you have people trying to – personally attack him, his credibility, his integrity, simply for telling the truth about what's happening, which I think is outrageous, of course. I also think it's pretty revealing. I want to ask you, Brandon, about this. I mentioned the gotaways, that term. I'm doing some math off the top of my head here. If you had almost 235,000 people caught at the border in April, if I go back to the March numbers, the gotaway, the known gotaway number, because there's a whole unknown universe of unknown godaways that were never detected yet were able to make it into the country illegally. That's a, a question mark number that we can't ascertain. But we do have the known godaway number where people were you know, picked up on radar or cameras or some sort of detection technology and we lacked the ability or the manpower to go capture them. So that number in March was 62,000 of godaways in that month. In April, I would imagine it was probably a little bit higher because the numbers overall were higher. If you think that's about right in your mind, you add those two together, we're talking about 300,000 people who entered the country illegally in the month of April, only about a third of whom were turned away. Is that math roughly correct in your mind?
7: it is it's it's not just roughly correct it's it's absolutely spot on when you look at it, and to put this in perspective when you look at this administration they've been in office for about a year and four months and in that year and four months, we have added between the uh, uh, between the people that have been released into the United States, which is about 1.3 million people have been released into the United States, and then you add on top of that the gotaways, which has been right about 800,000, we have added to our population in a short um one one year and four months we have added to our population more than 2 million people 2 million illegal border crossers that doesn't include the legal immigration 2.1 million illegal border crossers have been added to our population that's a larger number than a lot of states in the entire in, in the United States that is a scary number especially when you consider the godaways we don't know who they are where they're coming from, or what their intentions are here in the United States. And that could be for criminality. It could be for terrorist reasons. It could be for a lot of different reasons. That's scary. Border security is a serious issue, yet this administration does not take it seriously.
3: And among the people who are actually caught, seemingly on a daily basis, there are people who have been convicted and imprisoned and deported for crimes ranging from— Child abuse to sexual assault to murder and people who are hardcore cartel members and gang members. And as I always say, and I think it's important to point out, it is likelier that you would have a disproportionately higher percentage of those types of people in the gotaway population because they pay a lot more money. To not get caught, so many of these illegal immigrants want to get caught. they want to get processed, they want to enter the United States through this very broken system. There are other people with different incentives and they 're the ones who want to slip through the cracks and You just pointed out the millions of people who are entering the country illegally and who are ne- now staying and who are now staying in this country illegally for an indeterminate amount of time, in many cases, probably forever. You know, in the millions, and I know that we're having a debate right now in this country about various definitions of replacement theory or, you know, white replacement theory. I think a lot of that stuff is conspiratorial poison. I want nothing to do with it. I think it's built on lies. It is a completely different conversation, Brandon, to talk about millions of people violating our sovereignty and our laws and coming into this country— Without permission to be here. It is not racist. It is not white replacement theory. It is not xenophobic. It is a basic sovereignty, rule of law and public safety question. And I'm not going to be cowed. And I know you won't either into not talking about these things realistically, because some bad actors are going to dishonestly pretend that. The conversation we 're having here is actually code for something much worse it 's not This is an issue that is legitimate, it is acute, it is pressing it's happening right now, and it 's going to get worse. So, I just wanted this like a little public service announcement based on the rhetoric and the political well, well, discourse that, in this yeah. country in recent days.
7: <laughs> The liberal, the liberal media will have you believe that every single person that crosses the border illegally is a person of color, and that's not true. We deal with a great number of Eastern Europeans on a very, very regular basis. This has nothing to do with white replacement theory, nothing at all. It has to do with our laws here in the United States. It has to do with we deal with people from around the world, not just people of color. We deal with white people all the time, nothing to do with replacement replacement theory. It has everything yep. to do with the sovereignty of our borders. We have to be able to know who is coming into our country. We have to be able to decide what the laws are, and we have to be able to enforce those laws. If we don't enforce those laws, we become no better than the countries that these people are trying to flee from. We have yeah, to be and, able to and, enforce our laws. And on that
3: front, I just want to say it is dangerous and wrong and dishonest and dishonest to push theories like white replacement and some of those conspiracies that are out there on the fringe, I think it is also extremely dangerous and dishonest to conflate that with legitimate political discourse about pressing crucial issues like border security and national sovereignty and the border crisis that's playing out. Whether people want to acknowledge it or not, and a lot of them clearly don't for political reasons, they are separate, they are apart, And we're going to talk about the real issues that exist. And on that front, Brandon, on the Title 42 deadline, the clock is ticking toward May 23rd, which is the the date circled in red marker, red crayon, whatever it is. Is there any indication that the administration might get cold feet and walk away from this or postpone it or punt it? Because even a lot of people in their party are worried and wringing their hands. This might play badly politically, the, the fallout from this. Do you get any sense that they might pull this thing back from the brink, or are they full speed ahead?
7: Yesterday, just showed us that they are full speed ahead. Secretary Mayorkas yesterday reiterated that Title 42 is going to go away on March 23rd. There was no, there was no May. indication whatsoever. He didn't mince any words. It's going away on March 23rd. The only thing that can save Title 42 right now. Is If the federal judge that is currently reviewing the case uh, out of Louisiana, if he comes back and says that that, uh, what this administration is doing is illegal, they have to keep Title 42 in place. But even if the judge does that… It doesn't mean that the administration can't give just more carve-outs to people. Remember, right now we're only expelling about 50 percent of the people that cross the border illegally under Title 42. A a federal judge already told this administration that they have to reimplement the Remain in Mexico program. This this administration hasn't done it. So even if this judge comes back and says you can't get rid of Title 42, all the administration has to do is just give more carve-outs to more countries, and it effectively gets rid of Title 42 anyway.
3: Yeah, and – You said there's nothing that can be done except perhaps a ruling from a judge ahead of May 23rd. The other option, I know it's crazy, it's crazy talk, but Congress could do something. Congress could pass a law that effectively enshrines Title 42, and maybe they detach it from the public health issue and just say, look, if you're within a certain demographic, you are eligible for a speedy and immediate expulsion from the country. They could pass a standalone bill on that that would have the same effect as Title 42. That would prevent the disaster from getting worse, but I think the chances of that happening are virtually zero. Senate Democrats, every single one of them, voted against a similar amendment last year from Ted Cruz. They all voted it down. And even the ones who are now pretending that they're deeply concerned about the issue because they're up for reelection, ultimately I'm not sure that they would allow anything like this, any sort of enforcement to be passed into law without all sorts of bells and whistles and amnesties and paths to legalization or whatever that they would want to load up and make it all comprehensive. They are not committed to enforcement. And so even when there is a glaring need and a gaping wound, I think because of partisan politics and ideology and other motivations, the chances of Congress doing something that at least in theory should be bipartisan and obvious are close to zero, which is... Another depressing commentary on the state of our politics at the moment. Brandon Judd is the president of the National Border Patrol Council. He joins us, and we always appreciate your insights on this issue, sir. Thank you very much, and I'm sure we will talk again perhaps very soon because May the 23rd is looming.
2: Guy, it was good to speak with you. Thank you.
3: We will take a quick break. We will come right back on The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
3: I'm Guy Benson. As we come back to the program here, an update on a story we've been following, and that is the financial dealings of Black Lives Matter, the organization. Not the proposition, which I support, the organization, which I most certainly do not. And one of their leaders continues to go deeper into hot water over the way that a lot of these donations that flowed into the organization – we spent. We talked about the multi-million dollar mansion that was purchased in Los Angeles. We told you that whole story. And they were trying to kill that story, actually, and going after the journalist for asking questions. It turns out there was another mansion in Canada that they bought for $6.3 million, although they allocated $8 million for it. The New York Post says it's unclear where the remaining $1.7 million, quote, out-of-country grant went. So that's just uh, $1.7 million, I guess, floating around. Meanwhile, Patrice Cullors, she's the one who says all these questions, anyone asking about it, they're racist and sexist, of course. She also said she's triggered by IRS laws when it comes to the governance of charitable organizations. We are now learning that she used private jet services to travel around at an exorbitant cost, unsurprisingly, $73,000. This is for the leader of a charity. The reason cited was security concerns. Sure. Senators and Congress people fly commercial all the time. But I guess Patrice Cullors had to fly to her various mansions private because of alleged security concerns. And then there was this. A lot of the money that came into the coffers of BLM, the organization, went to people directly related to or sleeping with Ms. Cullors her eldest brother's organization made over eight hundred thousand dollars in contracts and the father of her child made almost a million dollars in contracts his organization i wonder at some point will the many people who open their wallets feeling like they were fighting for something important say enough is enough and will this organization blm be sufficiently exposed that the racial justice minded donor out there Decides to go elsewhere because, I mean, these abuses are piling up and they are surreal. And we'll keep following the whole story on The Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. I'm Guy Benson. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free of charge every single day on demand, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, which really is Terrific. It's so delicious, so refreshing. It is alcoholic. So 21 plus only, please. Always drink responsibly. They are expanding nationwide. TheLongDrink.com for all the areas where they are sold already. That footprint is growing. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Well, joining me here in studio in our D.C. Bureau in the Tony Snow Studios is Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, a Republican. He is Chairman of the Senate Republican Conference, also a medical doctor and senator.
8: It is so good to see you in person. Well, it's great to be back with you. It is better when we're face to face and with your sponsor. The Finnish long drink. I was in Finland on Monday, no talking kidding. to both the president of Finland and the prime minister of Finland because they have made the decision now to uh, join to apply for our, uh, to join NATO and uh, the implications of that. And you took a long drink. They have an 830-mile border between Finland and uh and russia
3: and sweden's in the same boat now as well i know the russians are rattling the saber they're not happy about it but they kind of brought this on themselves putin did this right the whole purpose ostensibly was to weaken nato and now he very well may have more nato neighbors than when he started this whole outrageous invasion
8: and and to your point sweden has been neutral since the days of napoleon yeah over two hundred years Finland has been neutral since World War II. Neither of them have joined NATO, and they said everything switched on February 24th when Putin invaded, showed to be the mass murderer in Ukraine, and they said that was it. Public opinion flipped immediately. And, you know, joining NATO is a responsibility. You have to make a commitment. And these are two countries with robust militaries, modern equipment, and they punch well above their weight. So in terms of am I supportive of it, absolutely, because I think they will make NATO stronger. You know, NATO is probably the most successful military alliance in the history of the world. Uh, It's there to to deter Russia and to mutually defend Uh, each other. This is this would be a great addition because of the strength they'll bring to it.
3: I love that you were able to plug a sponsor and then immediately transition seamlessly into a very serious topic that I was going to ask about already. I wasn't planning on asking about Finland and Sweden, but I think those are really important components of this trip that you were just on with a, a number of Republican senators. The big headlines and the images were out of Kiev, obviously, with you all meeting with President Zelensky First question What's the backstory there? I know that Speaker Pelosi was over there, the First Lady was there, Secretaries of State and Defense were there. How did this come about? Obviously, it had to be pretty shrouded in secrecy.
8: Give us some color. Well, we felt we needed to go and show Zelensky there's bipartisan support in the United States to do what he is doing. I believe he can win. The Republicans have been saying that long before the Democrats ever did. Uh, in so many ways, Joe Biden had to come along pushing and screaming as we actually had bipartisan groups in the Senate, and in the House to say, you got to do more, Mr. You're President. Sort of leading from behind. Yeah, and you know. He was kind of wringing his hands while other people were shaking their fist at what Putin was doing. And uh, These people in Ukraine are fighting for their lives. Fighting for their freedom, fighting for their country. And if they have the weapons and they have the ammunition and they have the resources they need, they will win. And we need to make sure that they have those things. We can do it in the United States, but it's a world effort. Other countries need to be involved as well and are. So Putin miscalculated Terribly, he had the whole thing wrong. Uh, he overestimated his own military's ability. He thought this was going to be done in four days. He underestimated the willpower, the fighting capacity of the people of Ukraine. Uh, you know, they ran to the, They didn't run out of the country. They ran to the to the to the sound of the guns.
3: So you went along with Leader McConnell, Senator Cornyn was there, Senator Collins was there, and yourself. All of a sudden. I look at my phone over the weekend, and here's this video of the four of you shaking hands with Zelensky. What was the process of getting from, hey, we ought to do this, to here we
8: are in Kyiv? You, you, we worked. It. We can't really tell the mechanism. Yeah, you don't, that have, we to, you got don't have to there. give it too specific. It was, uh, yeah, but it was a desire. You know, you fly into Poland and then work your way, and it's a long way from the Polish border to Kiev. Sure, like uh, seven hundred kilometers, and it's a slow process. Uh, you know, you leave all of your electronic equipment behind. No electronic signals are going. So you take a book, but it's a long process in and then out. With the, the most obviously uh, energizing component of it was being with Zelensky, with the Speaker of the House, with those. I had met him several times in the past Uh, he has really risen to the occasion of a a nation a a national leader a political leader as well as a military leader of unifying his country unifying the world and showing the weakness of vladimir putin for people it's it's really clear that putin won't stop until he is stopped and actions mean much more to him than words to Mm -hmm. putin and he is now seeing action that he never expected
3: Two more questions on this. Number one, there are some Americans, not that many, but they're a pretty vocal group who believe that we are spending too much money on this, that we are too focused on Ukraine, that resources could be better applied elsewhere or here at home. What's your response to that mindset?
8: Yeah, I I believe Ukraine is in our national interest because Putin will continue to march if no one steps up. The people of Ukraine are not asking for any soldiers from America they need they said just give us the weapons, we will fight our own battle and and I believe they will you You can debate how much money is right and there were some senators that voted against. Giving that, they say, well, the dollar figure is too high, but they do want to do something to commit. They want other nations, as do I, to be part of that commitment. And lots of nations are helping in lots of different ways. We have the most sophisticated weaponry that they know how to use. We are backfilling some other countries. We passed a land lease act. The uh, the implications for the world of of a Putin continuing to be aggressive aggressive uh, is very detrimental to our to, to world stability obviously to energy prices uh, and to uh, and to the future of the free world. I
3: want to come back to energy in a moment. Just one more point on Ukraine. We had Jennifer Griffin, our colleague here at Fox, on the show this week, and she said it's great that Pelosi was there. It's great that you all went there. That shows the bipartisan support. What about traveling together, Republicans and Democrats? It does seem to be the segregated delegation by party, which is a little weird to me because it's one of the issues that actually does have very strong – robust, enthusiastic bipartisan support.
8: I think had uh, Speaker Pelosi or, the, or the, uh, the first lady said, let's make this bipartisan, you know, I think we would have joined in, but that wasn't the case. Uh, We've seen as you had those trips and we said, we need to go to show bipartisan Got it. support. And, but the other times I've been to Ukraine have been bipartisan groups. There were a group of eight of us who were actually in Ukraine in 2014, the same weekend that Russia took Crimea. Wow. And so there are no, there, there's a big bipartisan supportive group to say we need to make sure that the Ukrainian people who we knew were tough, knew were ready to fight would have what they need so they can put on the fight and Zelensky is the right leader at the time.
3: You mentioned energy. You have introduced legislation to try to increase US energy production. I know that the administration sort of talks as if they're already doing that. Their actions are totally the opposite. To the point that they're so hostile to American energy production that they're shutting down and canceling certain lease sales. They're also going hat in hand to Caracas to, you know, to talk to socialist dictatorships.
8: Yeah, it's Joe Biden is desperate. He doesn't know what to do. He's throwing another Hail Mary pass going to Venezuela. He's previously, you know, going trying to get this Iran deal so we can get Iran uh, oil. He is so beholden. To the liberal left in terms of energy and this climate extremist group, the you know the snob superiority of the John Kerry's of the world that they just know better than all of us, uh, and as a result, he has continued to fight American energy from day one. But Kelber I don't. I just don't Keystone XL it. pipeline, oil and gas leases stopped it. So the other day he makes a speech. One day he he says it's Putin's Putin's price hike, and the very next day he cancels three major leases. Uh, in, in the Gulf and in Alaska for oil and gas exploration. People see through this. this the president has no credibility. Uh, it lost all credibility on, on energy, and the American people are just convinced that he has no idea what to do.
3: Well, I think that he's making that abundantly clear. And what I don't get, and maybe you can help me with this, if they're going to be hostile to U.S. production here because of fossil fuels or carbon emissions or the green agenda, whatever it is, Do they think the oil that we would be buying from Venezuela or Iran is going to magically be produced in a clean way? I just – it doesn't make any sense.
8: Now we are the best environmental stewards of the world. I mean I think of energy strength, economic security, and environmental stewardship, and nobody does it better than we do it in the United States. We can produce more. We can produce it cleaner. We all want to make energy as clean as we can, as fast as we can, but do it in ways that don't raise costs for American families. Joe Biden has it backwards. He's actually not helping the environment at all, and he's hurting our economy. Like we're much better as a nation if we're selling energy to our friends who want to buy it from us as opposed having, to Russia, for than example. having to buy it from our enemies.
3: On another subject, I read at length this week from a Politico story on the air. Politico had this headline and this whole piece about how Joe Biden finally has had enough. No more Mr. Nice Guy. He's been trying to be as bipartisan as any president of all time for a year and a half, and the Republicans just won't take his hand of friendship. So now he's going to take off the gloves, and he's going to go on the attack. The premise of this story is astounding to me from where I sit. You're a member of Senate Republican leadership. Have you experienced Joe Biden being a moderate, relentless pursuer of bipartisanship throughout his presidency? Did I miss
8: that? No, you didn't miss it. Day one, killed the Keystone XL pipeline, blocked oil and gas leases, opened the border to Mexico, eliminated what we knew worked that President Trump had done. And then within two months, passed the largest spending bill in the history of the United States. They had some rescue plan named to it. Mm -hmm. Party line. Party line vote. Not a single Republican in the Senate. Nobody voted for it on our side of the aisle. Direct party line vote, which is what we all said is going to bring on record inflation. And it was Joe Biden taking that party line vote that brought us to 40-year high inflation with all this excessive spending, the regulations, all of the things that we know don't help an economy. They claimed it was going to be COVID. And when you look through the bill, 9% of the money is COVID. The rest of it, Checks to illegal immigrants, checks to prisoners, you know, people. Well, they're saying they're out of home. money,
3: right? On the actual it, it, COVID yes. stuff, they say now we're oh we're we're out of money. Sorry, we need more money now for tests and for you know treatments and for vaccines. I, I can't imagine how they can seriously come to the American people with a straight face after six trillion dollars have gone out the door and say, oh, the core COVID related items, those line items. Oh, the the coffers are empty.
8: And they wanted to link it to the Ukraine bill when the Republicans said, no, that's not going to happen. Oh, and they want to keep it apart from Title 42 at the border, which is going to expire in just a few days. So if you take a look at the COVID needs and they say, we need all this money for COVID, but don't look at the border. The border's fine. Anybody can come over illegally and we'll do all of this. We're not going to test nothing. What is it? Are we having a COVID crisis that you need all this additional money, or is there no crisis at all, which means everybody can come across the and border? And Title 42 goes, goes away. away. Yeah, more because incoherence.
3: Should Republicans be scared of an angry Joe Biden going on the attack out of the midterms?
8: Um, no. There's the American people see through all of this. They're not going to be uh, – no, they're not at all. The, the American people are going to be voting based on the cost of energy, what it costs to fill up their tank, the cost of food. The inflation is going to be the number one issue with this, and uh, I think one of the other stories that Politico out—you mentioned that one about no more Mister Nice Guy. Uh, this reminds me of of Barack Obama when uh, he talked about how badly he uh, he lost uh, the House and and the Senate uh, when he did, and uh, the shellacking. The shellacking is, I think, what we're looking at soon.
3: Last question: the disinformation board, no more. Apparently, it has been suspended. Nina Jankowicz is going to find some other. I guess, prospects or something to occupy her time, perhaps some off, off, off Broadway work. I don't know. Uh, Was this long overdue? Should we have ever had this whole debate in the first place?
8: Should have never had it in the first place. This shows how clueless this administration is, but I don't expect to see her here at Fox News.
3: You know, who knows? It would be very interesting if she would sit down with a Tucker, for example. That's something I might Tune in for That would be some must-see TV. I'm not sure if she'd go along with it. Uh, but, Senator, it is great to see you here in studio, in person. I know you had TV earlier. Very grateful that you spent some time with us here on the radio as well. Thanks, Guy. John Barrasso, U.S. Senator, Wyoming, also a medical doctor, part of Republican leadership, who was, as we just said at the top, recently over in Ukraine. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thanks very much for listening. Well, this story at least made me smile or perhaps smirk, and it goes to something that we've talked about before here on the show. Part of the problem that the Democrats have, and we were discussing this a moment ago with Senator Barrasso, they are so held hostage by a progressive activist movement that is very, very active on Twitter. And outsized in its influence, and I think deeply off-putting to a lot of voters, it is detrimental, it is counterproductive for the Democratic Party to be so linked and so controlled by this fringe. And a lot of their problems on the Democratic side emanate not from nomenclature, not from terminology, but from substance, from outcomes, from their record. But some of it also does deal with the former issue as well. And an example that we often give and is typically ridiculed on the right is this totally invented term Latinx to describe Hispanics or Latinos. And it was dreamed up by left-wing woke activists because they don't like the fact that Spanish is a gendered language. So Latino, Latina, let's get rid of it and make it all neutral and woke and politically correct. Let's throw an X on there. Latin X. One of our Hispanic friends, a young woman, derisively calls this Latinx. She hates it. And she's not alone. Poll after poll has shown that actual Hispanics know nothing about this term and don't use it. Although I saw an example the other day on Twitter. Someone was telling a story From the workplace where a colleague of theirs used the word Latino in a conversation, and by the way, that person happened to be a person of color, a white boss jumped in to admonish that person for not using Latinx, which is the approved, invented, kind of like insulting term, which almost feels like it was dreamed up in some left-wing lily-white think tank. Well, here's one more data point on this front. It's a poll of Hispanic voters in Los Angeles. So a very blue city in a very blue state. And they asked them, what do you prefer to be called? Hispanic, Latino or Latinx? The results, 71% of Los Angeles Hispanics say we prefer Hispanic, 71%. 28% say Latino, leaving a whopping 1% of Los Angeles Hispanics who embrace Latinx. It's not a thing. It's alienating. It turns people off. It's tone deaf. For all of those reasons, I hope the progressive left and the people that they control in the Democratic Party keep going with Latinx. Keep flogging it, guys. It's going great. Guy Benson Show, Happy Hour, continues right after this.
2: Guy Benson
3: it's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Thanks so much for listening. We spoke to one U.S. Senator earlier this hour previously in the show we spoke to another dr. Bill Cassidy senator from Louisiana a Republican was here here's part of my discussion with
7: him so if it's pausing because you think the board was mischaracterized then the disinformation board is being shut down because of disinformation is that
1: what's happening here
5: look I mean the the board was put forth for a purpose right to make sure that we really did a att- uh, uh, really did address what was happening across the country when it came to disinformation and it's okay it's all, you know but look, days. It's, it's just going it, it's it's going to pause. There's been a mischaracterization from outside uh, outside forces, and so now what we're going to do is going to we're going to pause it and we're going to do an assessment. But the work does the work doesn't stop. We're still going to continue the work. The DHS is still going to continue the work. Okay.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We are back. That was an exchange between Peter Ducey and the new White House press secretary today about the pause of this disinformation board that was derailed because of outside forces saying wrong things or something. But the work continues. Or something. I'm sort of confused by what exactly is going on here. Maybe someone who can help us with it is Dr. Bill Cassidy, U.S. Senator from the state of Louisiana. He is a Republican. And Senator Cassidy, it's good to have you back here.
6: Hey, Guy, thank you for having me. I'm just kind of smiling at that interchange you just played. Um, um, The work continues. That, That strikes fear in your heart, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, what work are they talking about? Is it the role of the government at all? to decide what is misinformation and disinformation, given their track record in the last, oh, I don't know, couple of years alone. Seems like the official arbiters of this stuff have been really very wrong a lot of the time.
6: Well, when the official arbiter that they appoint was clearly wrong on two big issues, and then they speak about whatever the right sided right wing kind of misinformation attacking her whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm thinking, no, it speaks for itself look at her judgment on previous things, look at her tweets, wait a second, we're supposed to trust her. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking.
3: Yeah, well, apparently they've decided to reconsider the whole thing. They're not saying that the the plug has been permanently pulled, but at least for now it has. And again, I think that we should keep an eye on it because they might try to resurrect it in some other form. And I think generally this is a bad idea, period, for the government to be wading into such matters. And some of the so-called misinformation or disinformation that has been censored and then sort of sheepishly admitted to as at least plausible, if not accurate information in recent years, has surrounded the issue of COVID, where people brought up totally fair questions about masking, about mitigation efforts and restrictions and the efficacy of those restrictions, the harm against children for shutdowns in closed schools, for example, the origins of the virus itself potentially leaking out of a laboratory in China. A lot of that stuff, you, you couldn't say that on social media. Things would get shut down. Your your account could be suspended. You'd be upbraided as a conspiracy theorist by many in the media. And then you wait a few months or you wait a year and then, oh, it's sort of conventional wisdom all of a sudden. I wonder, given that, Senator, you're a medical doctor as well. What do you make of the re-imposition that we're starting to see of restrictions and sort of, you know, red level warnings about COVID and masks coming back on in schools, even some school closures again? Are we about to start making the same exact mistakes over and over again in some places?
6: We better not. I'll just say that as a doc. But as a doc i can tell you looking at the literature the effect of isolation upon our society has been awful it has increased the number of people who are dying from overdoses it is it has taken a whole group of children and has taken a year out of their learning life i just saw something yesterday from a college professor that the students who came back from isolation just really are not the same students that went into isolation so there was a high price to pay there guy and i think the important thing is that we highlight that whatever the uh, other risk might be there that always has to be a cost benefit ratio and the cost was far higher than people wish to admit as you just pointed out
3: you have recently called senator for an operation warp speed which is what we associate of course with the vaccines Although we saw some misinformation from the White House in a tweet the other day saying that there was no vaccine until Joe Biden was president. So uh, I wonder if perhaps Nina Jankowicz can now spend some of her free time trying to find whoever wrote that tweet. But Operation Warp Speed, you're saying that should be replicated. But on the energy front, what would that look like from your perspective, an Operation Warp Speed for American energy?
0: Think
6: about what happened for Operation Warp Speed for vaccine. We were told it would take two to ten years. You're thinking, wait, we're going to be locked down for two to ten years? And instead, the administration brought everybody in a room, uh, you know, metaphorically. They said, listen, do you have a problem with this? If you do, work it out with that agency. Okay, agency number two, have you solved it? If not, keep working at it. And they're able to come in. Now, Congress had given them the tools. But they use these tools to do things you know, in parallel instead of one time after the other. And they actually sped it up so that vaccine was being given to people 10 months after the epidemic began, at least hit the shores of, of, of the United States. We should do the same thing in energy. Right now, we've got bureaucrats tying people who are developing renewable energy in knots. Uh, Not just fossil fuel, which is essential to our economy, but all the other projects as well.
3: That full interview with Dr. Bill Cassidy, U.S. Senator for Louisiana, available at GuyBensonShow.com, along with the rest of today's show on demand, always for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a chief happiness officer update plus an online rumor that has thankfully been swatted down. We'll explain all of that when we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
3: Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition, off to Nashville, Tennessee tonight. I'll be doing the show from there the next couple of days out there for an event, looking forward to being in the volunteer state. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. It's always on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, at Guy Benson Show, on Twitter and on Instagram. Well, in this segment yesterday, which was really quite something if you missed it, you can go back on the podcast and enjoy it if you would like, Producer Christine was nominated for a position called the Chief Happiness Officer. Apparently, companies are doing more of this now, and we thought maybe she could be an interesting candidate for such a position here at Fox. And so she decided to, I guess, seriously or tongue-in-cheek pitch it to our boss's boss in the hallway today. This, I believe, and Christine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the same higher-up who was the one who suggested recently that you continue to wear a mask forever just to try to keep the volume of your voice lower on the floor where radio occupies a lot of the space. I think it's the same person. So you approached him, and what was your sales pitch, and what was the reaction? How was the reception to Cookie as chief happiness officer?
1: So um, he just kept walking. So I'm not – you know what I'm thinking? Maybe he just didn't hear me. Were you wearing a mask? No. Oh, I'm supposed to be wearing a mask. Thanks. Thanks. Don't get me in trouble. Uh, no, I was not wearing a mask. Because he
3: was the same one who recommended that you always wear one,
1: right? Yeah, just me, though. Not everybody else.
3: No, I, I know. So clearly he heard you. That's, that's the whole point. You're very easily heard.
1: No, he, he, he heard a little bit, and he just shook his head. My boss, and this, we're talking about a big boss here, you know, like my boss's boss. I'm not sure what the issue is, but when he sees me, sometimes he doesn't say a word and just shakes his head and laughs and then keeps walking. He just starts
3: laughing. mm -hmm. Just seeing you, he starts laughing.
1: Yes. See,
3: you're bringing happiness already.
1: I did mention the the costume. Yeah, the
3: mere sight of you causes laughter to break out.
1: I don't think it's the proper laughter. I don't think it's the laughter that
3: I want. That you want. Okay. So you didn't get a strong no on chief happiness officer, but maybe not an endorsement is what I'm hearing here.
1: I feel – I know we'll probably get in trouble. I feel like we should call him right now. Don't you think Uh, it would be funny if we called him right now and asked him his thoughts?
3: I do not. You can do that, and you can let us know how that goes. At some point, you might become chief unemployed
1: officer. (laughs) I mean for the show. Come on, guy. You know, I I think
3: we're just going to let that lie. I'm willing to do a lot of interesting things here. I think – borderline crank calling our bosses on the radio, that might be just a line of propriety that I'm unwilling to cross. That's just me. Why don't you ask him if he's up for doing the bit? Um, And he'll probably just walk past you You obviously know I'm already ahead
1: of you, right? He has not responded.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I think that's our answer for now. Let's put a pin in it. And I don't want to kill the dream. The dream is still alive. Cookie as chief happiness officer, although on the planning call for the show today, we had a chief unhappiness enforcer in War Wyatt. War Wyatt was on the war path about a rumor that he saw on Twitter that Costco was going to be raising the cost that has been set in stone for a very years for their hot dogs. Right. They sell these gigantic and I will admit good hot dogs at these kind of cafe things that they have at a Costco where they have giant sodas, huge slices of pizza, big hot dogs and the hot dog has been I think a buck 50 forever but because of inflation there was a rumor that they were going to raise that price and Wyatt was very upset about this now number 1 Wyatt are you a Costco member and shopper? Yeah very much so. Yes. I I love Costco. Do you spend your Saturdays, after you read the Wall Street Journal cover-to-cover starting at 4.30 a.m., do you then walk miles to your local Costco and spend the day browsing? You can have lunch with all the little samples they give out. Is that a typical weekend for you? No, but I do typically go
0: on the weekend, but at least maybe once every other week or at least at the very most once a month.
3: Wow. Okay, so you are— A frequent shopper at Costco. I think we're members. We don't go nearly as much. Although we have our big barbecue coming up, so we will be going ahead of that. Although we can buy a little bit less booze, apparently, because producer Christine, yet again, is just snubbing us. She's like, oh, best friends, best friends, never invites us to her house, and snubs most of the invites that she gets to go elsewhere, including this one yet again. She's going somewhere she doesn't even want to go. That's how best friends we are. Let's not
1: say that on air. I'm
3: I'm just that's my speculation. I'm not quoting you directly. Many people are saying unnamed sources close to cookie have alleged that she may not be thrilled with the alternative and yet she's going with the alternative. It's all I'm saying. So Wyatt, you dug into this and it turns out that the buck fifty hot dog price tag is not increasing. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it was a it was a tweet that someone tweeted out to make it look like it was a news account when in fact it was not. And I saw this on several different accounts, people posting this. Oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening.
3: But it turned out it is fake news. So really, it's disinformation. See, on the day that they get rid of the disinfo board, sweet Nina, can you imagine the musical production she could have turned the Costco hot dog story into? The disinformation that's been spread clearly by Republicans because that's who she blames for everything. I think we could have – a brand new TikTok video just about this. Maybe she would even do something as preposterous as wear a hot dog suit, like a whole costume of a hot dog to perform. Who would ever do a thing like that, Christine?
1: Guy, can I speak up here for a second? You may. I, I'm not sure if I ever actually spoke about Justin, you might not know about this. Um, but I once lost a bet and actually had to wear a full-on hot dog costume. <laughs>
3: Oh, she's so happy whenever there's on the about it. I don't like to talk today.
1: about it a lot.
3: <laughs> you love talking about it so much. You mention it any chance you get. Wyatt mentioned the Costco story on the call, and you're like, hot dog? Did someone say hot dog? Have I ever told you? And then you launch into the whole thing. Now, were you charging a buck fifty in the hot dog outfit for photos? Guy.
1: <laughs> you... No. What? No. I was not charging when I was in my hot dog costume. You were taking photos with
3: strange. Wait, for free? You were taking photos for free in Times Square. Yes. Isn't that not how the whole racket works?
1: No, but again, I'm bringing happiness to Times Square.
3: Mm, I'm not sure anyone can really do that, but you were trying,
1: weren't you? Saying something to passersby,
3: if I recall correctly, what was that? So I was
1: actually buying hot dogs from the um, vendor, you know, the street vendors, and Uh then I was holding them up and asking if every anybody wanted my wiener. (sighs)
3: <sighs> Did you? Was that on the air?
1: hmm
3: Yeah, no wonder you have no boundaries or limits. So we, we run a, a slightly tighter ship here at the Guy Benson Show. We're not doing any nonsense stunt like that. But we'll talk about it apparently monthly. It's like it's in your contract, that it has to be slipped into the conversation at some point so you can let the whole world know. In fact, you had your new Twitter account, which debuted, I think, last month, at Cookies Jar 1988. And initially, you had a photo of yourself in the hot dog costume as your Twitter photo. And then you chickened out and got rid of it because you were worried that Trey Yinkst was going to judge you.
1: Yes. I mean, I am a professional and a colleague of his. And I didn't want him to, you know, look down on me. But uh, I, what do the kids do tomorrow? It's Throwback Thursday, YY? Is that what they do? Maybe I'll uh, throw up that picture and, you know, hashtag yeah, it.
3: Yeah. Yingst has already seen it. Plus, if you're going to be chief happiness officer, you can occasionally trade in the Jester costume for the hot dog costume. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. Wyatt, when you go to Costco on your weekly or biweekly pilgrimage, how many of the hot dogs do you buy and consume? One, or do you go two?
0: See, I'm not a huge hot dog person For at Costco. I always get the
3: pizza. The pizza is really, really good. Wait, so— yeah, why were you all up in arms about the hot dog going up if you don't even get it?
0: Because it's a tradition, and we shouldn't break traditions like that. Like It has been $1.50 for the longest time, and I don't care if inflation or not, it shouldn't, it shouldn't change the fact that it's only $1.50. Their
3: hot dogs are big, and they're good. They are better than their pizza, and you're from New Jersey, and you should know better. You never have their hot dog? I mean I've had
0: it before. They're also their um Italian sausage sandwich is good as well. Is that more? Does that cost more? I think so, yes. They've also got those rotisserie chickens too, right? For cheap,
3: for 4.99. That's very cheap. Yep. Huh. I kind of want to go back to Costco now. Something that I never say. This is not an ad by the way. We've just gone down this rabbit hole. Christine, do you have anything else to add? We're almost out of time.
1: Yes, I'm not allowed to go to Costco.
3: Or have you been banned from the chain
1: nationwide? Because um, I will like something that I sample there, and then I'll make by Bobby Biden bulk, and then I get sick of it and never eat it, and then we're stuck with it.
3: That sounds exactly correct and on brand, You like on Kirkland brand almost, for cookie. Like, that totally tracks. So... Do you guys even have a membership anymore or have you just moved on? He
1: he does. Uh, I I, I don't go. Bobby actually – I I don't even actually do any more food shopping. This is a whole different topic. But Bobby tries to go food shopping at like 7 in the morning when he knows I'm not up because Bobby feels that if Megan and I go, the bill doubles. So I don't actually do any of the grocery shopping in my home.
3: Wow. All right. I feel like we need to hang on to that story and explore that further. In a future homestretch, because I have questions, but we don't have time for the answers. And it's another layer of the cookie onion just getting slowly peeled back. The band from Costco and grocery shopping element of the mystery, the enigma, that is producer Christine. Got to run. It's the Guy Benson Show. Back here from Tennessee, Nashville tomorrow and Friday. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Have a great night.